So I go out on a limb and say the front spoiler is good for a second. The rear spoiler is good for a second at road courses like Button Willow. And funny story today, Max Verstappen, he and I had the same home track. He was five years old at the time. <laughs> he was like a helmet with shoes. He looked at it and he kind of said, oh, this is nice. But, you know, if you're going to do something like a serious fashion item, you need to do it in Italy or don't waste your time. So he introduced me to the people that make the small leather goods for Ferrari. Hello. And welcome to The Next Great Car Era, a podcast by EV Tuners. I'm your host, Daniel Martin, and today I'm sitting down with Charles Meyer of the Meyer Corporation, formerly known as Meyer Racing. Meyer Racing was originally started by Bill Meyer to supply racing parts for Mustang enthusiasts. After years of success, Charles took over the business from his father and has continued its growth by adding new product lines and divisions under the Meyer Corp umbrella. One of those divisions is called Meyer EV, which produces carbon fiber parts built for the racetrack. These parts leverage the decades of race experience and expertise in the manufacture of high-quality carbon fiber. Beyond making parts, Charles is himself a successful driver and experienced racer and has branched out into many interesting areas to date. Among the topics in our conversation, we chat about his path in motorsport, take a deep dive into carbon fiber, and discuss what's next for Meyer EV and Meyer Corporation. Before we dive in, please remember to like and subscribe on YouTube, leave a review anywhere you listen to podcasts, and follow us on Instagram. It helps a ton, and I really appreciate it. And with that, now, enjoy. Well, with that... Charles, welcome, and thank you for joining me today. Uh, we have a, a ton to talk about, and before we do, maybe you can just give us a quick intro and background. Yeah, let's see. Um, as funny as it sounds to say it like this, I was born in 1969, and my dad started the business, Meyer Racing, at the time. And uh, my mom tells me that uh, they took me to the races right out of the gate. And uh, I was sleeping through <laughs> them firing up engines and tuning carburetors and all this kind of stuff with wide open exhaust. So uh, every year of my life, I've been at the racetrack. So uh, that's that's how I started. And my dad uh, started working on, he raced Porsches, he raced Austin Healy's, a variety of things on a very low level, primarily autocrossing. Uh, in the 60s. And then he started to get in the late 60s into road racing. And for whatever reason, he gravitated to a Mustang. And so he got a 68 Mustang. That was his first uh, like full-fledged effort to a full road race car. Because back in the 60s, the, uh, a racing car for autocrossing or even road racing was something that you drove from home to the racetrack. Uh, you may sure. or may not have a second set of tires, and then you drove it back. And then uh, shortly... Uh, late 60s, early 70s, it became something that you uh, load up on a trailer. You know, you've got committed tires and racing gas and an engine with high compression and, you know, all these other things that don't really make it street able. Yeah. So he started to do that with this Mustang and and he got in his brain that he was going to be Mustangs forever kind of a thing. So in the early 70s, he started um, some of the customers that would go to the racetrack, call them up Monday morning and say, Hey, we saw how you did. And, you know, we want our Mustang to perform like that. So he started carrying Ford motorsport, uh, aftermarket parts and engine parts and that kind of a thing. And then eventually he got the idea to put bigger tires and wheels on it. So he flared it. He flared the car wide bodied it as people say now, mm -hmm. and he did that on his own. And again, just sort of this 
natural organic evolution of the process happened where he uh, started offering all the parts that he made. And he learned how to make fiberglass parts in like 1971 or 72. And it was sort of the uh, boating process. Mm -hmm. And uh, one thing led to another. And today we have, to be honest, I don't have a perfect inventory, but it's more than 600 molds to make wow uh, market mustang primarily classic mustang 65 to 70 but i would say for like the tesla side of things we've got probably 40 different molds for that so uh it's it's growing and as funny as it is the uh the tesla side of things grew the same way in the sense that um a guy that i know that his dad as i mentioned before his dad used to race with my dad in the 80s uh in trans am um we happened to be neighbors and started talking about this his his hobby involvement in racing and he says oh i have a model three on order and as soon as i get it i want to be the fastest electric model three at laguna seca or button willow you know whichever one we did both actually and um ultimately he said uh i have some engineers at tesla that um, have told us that the model three at about 60 to 80 miles an hour starts to get light in the back end mm -hmm. and it really needs a rear spoiler so we made a uh, seven-inch rear spoiler. That was kind of a, a BS guess. Uh, I looked at the car, and um, from my first business in 1992 to, let's see, I think that first spoiler was made in uh, 2020, something like that. So um, from, so let's see, 02, 12, 22, so just a little less than 30 years of having my own business, making racing parts and doing things at the racetrack, I didn't use um, all the trick tools that we might've had. Um, it was really sort of a quick, uh, we got three weeks to make this. Uh, we brought the car in, put it in the shop, used foam um, and created a, a master, kind of eyeballed it and um, took it to the track. Uh, to Button Willow was the first place that we went. And uh, the guys, ran the car a good baseline and got a lap time, well, several during the day, and then mounted the rear spoiler and they dropped a second a lap. So it was pretty clear that they had more stability in the back end, which enabled them to uh, drive more aggressively. And, and the window between grip and no grip uh, got a little bit wider and it wasn't so, hey, it's, uh, it's there, oh, it's gone. And so that makes drivability better. And so I got lucky really that this seven inch spoiler worked and um, I had made it, it was mostly my idea that if you if you add downforce to the back, which is going to give you grip in the back of the car, that you should have the option to balance it out in front. So it, when you're adding um, downforce to front or rear, you want to tune in because you may gain what you wanted in the back, but now the front end's loose. So what that right. means to someone that may not comprehend that language is you go into the corner, you turn the wheel and the car goes straight. So you need a little bit more balance, more downforce in the front so that it's, it's somewhat evenly applied. So I had made this front spoiler again, you know, kind of this look and design and, and get a feel for what's worked in other cars. And, um, we put that together and, and the guys really waited till at the button willow event. We had Friday all day, Saturday, all day, Sunday, all day. And the last session Sunday, uh, they hadn't put the front spoiler on yet. And I said, Hey, you know, I know you didn't really ask for it, but why not give it a try? You've done all these other things. You've done alignment and tire pressures and, you know, anything that you could kind of tweak out of the car uh, somewhat easily. 
let's put that spoiler on and find out. So we didn't have time to really completely bolt it into place. So we kind of mounted it up and duct taped it in. And we had two-sided tape, but you know we wanted to make sure that there weren't any other issues. And now our version has bolts to fully secure it. But uh, they went out. They did the last session on the front spoiler. They kind of botched the uh, the lap, which means that they made a few mistakes and mm-hmm. still increased eight-tenths of a second over their best time all week. So that's nearly a second. So I go out on a limb and say the front spoiler is good for a second. The rear spoiler is good for a second at road courses like Button Willow. And we eventually went to Laguna. And um, I think for a short window of time, that car held the fastest EV Model 3 um, at Laguna. But I don't know who currently has that record. And the guys at Mountain uh, Mountain Pass Performance, do yeah. you know those guys? I do. Yeah. They were very much involved in in all aspects of this car and, and what was done and putting their suspension on it. And um, they also drove it. And uh, yeah, we, we went a little bit further than what I offer right now with some additional, like I put a gurney rear uh, rear gurney lip on the back spoiler eventually. Um, but that was further down the road. So mm-hmm. I could go on and on and on, but that's 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 the sort of short intro. Yeah, th- I, that's amazing. And what's really cool, I think, uh, as I discovered you guys by looking at some folks that were putting fast times down. And I know uh, Jordan Priestley, um, Revolting mm-hmm. Motorsports. And and so I found your parts through through that and have just been really excited about how the company and and you are leveraging your real world race experience and in, into building these parts. And then they go and they're actually being used. And I, I think that that's a really neat story. Um, you were telling me a bit about your own personal, I mean, you have your family in motorsport. Um, I, it's, it's funny. I was at Button Willow this last weekend. I think I mm-hmm. told you. And um, I, because the Tesla is heavy, I and a bunch of my friends are driving GT350s, Mustangs. I've been saying I'm like an honorary Mustang now. And uh, <laughs> I was telling them, oh, I'm going to get this kit. And uh, I was talking to Charles and we're going to do an episode. And they were like, oh, my gosh, Charles Meyer, Meyer Racing. That's awesome. Like, they do such cool stuff. I'd love to hear more about, like, you driving on the track and some of your background racing. Uh, you s- said you were even racing in Europe for a time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, it, it's an interesting thing because I really wanted to start racing at a young age. Um, my first recollection of having an opportunity to drive was at five or six years old. And we had a family wow. friend that was doing um, quarter midgets, which is basically roundy round go-karts kind of a thing. And uh, I remember as funny as this is, even at that young age, I remember visiting with this guy, Jim, and seeing the race cars that his son had. And he wanted me to be a teammate to his son and him having the discussion with my dad uh, saying, hey, you know, we want to uh, invite Charlie uh, to go ahead and drive and and help my son develop a car. And when two people drive on a team together, provided their personalities don't clash, which is <laughs> tough because you're both chasing the same goal, you know, to win. Right. Um, you can you can help each other and complement uh, the setup and figure out, you know, why is one guy a second faster than the other guy? And then you start looking at, you know, the mechanics of it or asking when one person's on the gas or on the brake and maybe you learn something from it. And my dad very clearly told Jim, as long as I'm racing, we have one person in the family racing. <laughs> I was 
was just like, what? what? Oh, no. I was completely blown away. I was so bummed. So <laughs> I really didn't get a chance to drive and get behind the wheel until I was almost 18, 17, 18 years old. And I started in autocrossing. And um, my dad's career had kind of tapered off a little bit at that point. And uh, he wasn't as regularly at the track. He was more focused on his business. Uh, he did race 27 years consecutively. And then um, I I was at a point where I found out very quickly that the racing that I wanted to do was very expensive. Uh, at least it's all relative, right? You know, I, I wanted to go road racing. I didn't really want to do autocrossing. And I did some autocrossing. Yeah. Um, and that was probably putting it into a date that was somewhere in the mid to late eighties. Mm-hmm. So like 88, somewhere in there. And then, um, as, as kind of funny things would have it, uh, life kind of put me more in the direction of working on the team. So I was working on my dad's team or, um, I would work, I started working on other teams and learning how other people, you know, would organize approaching, coming to the racetrack, preparing their car, all this, and then in 1992, I started building my own business, uh, building carbon fiber parts. So I build bodies for the Trans Am series. And the Trans Am series still runs today, by the way. They had some period where they were kind of, um, wow. they slowed down, didn't have too much activity. But apparently, it's pretty strong now. So I used to build bodies for that. I built carbon fiber valve covers, did all that, started in 92. And um, I'm, I'll get to the racing point, but. I had a gap of my driving. Uh, I did autocrossing and all that for maybe two or three years. And then I um, fo- really focused on just building and creating parts for the racing industry. So I did that from 92. And then in 1997, I sold my business to Kane and Air Filters in mm. uh, Riverside, California is where they're headquartered at. Right. So um, I-, I went to work for them. I taught them the carbon fiber process of everything that I was doing, um, brought them the valve covers that we were doing for all these different race applications. And um, yeah, ultimately skipping through some details, I left KN. I was there for about a year transitioning my business to them. And then I got an invitation to come back, which is really kind of funny, but they said they had this office in Europe and they said it looked good on paper, the business plan, but it's not working very well. You know, would you mm-hmm. have an interest in going and running that for us? And so I moved to the Netherlands and I lived there almost five years. And while I was there, I got the opportunity to race go-karts and go-karts in Europe are, it's kind of a different level. It's, um, it, it would be comparable to maybe saying that you play soccer here in the States, but you decided to go play soccer in England, um, you know, in <laughs> Manchester for three years. You know, I mean, it's like it's it's such an intense level. They're on the track every single week of the year, rain, snow, sunshine, whatever. They don't care. They're always on the track and they're not on the track one day a week. They're on the track three days a week, four days a week. The guy who owned the team, he had seven drivers for him, and uh, he literally lived at the racetrack. He had an apartment just connected to the racetrack. Wow. So their commitment was like intense. So uh, I started racing shifter carts was my first thing. And um, the guy laughed at me and he said, why are you racing shifter carts? You know, like, you're not ready for that. And I'm like, oh, no, I've been around racing my whole life. You know, I comprehend this. I'm going to get this. My dad was a race car driver. I, I was so wrong after <laughs> nine months. He just, he he finally looked at me and he says, are you going to stop screwing around? That That's the polite family version of what he said. <laughs> and I'm like, 
Yes. Okay. I give up. I, I need to learn. What do I need to do? He said, sell that, buy that really slow one over there and learn how to drive. So I did that and uh, I raced um, a year and a half in in a go-kart that was kind of probably the, their lowest entry level, push button start, little battery on it, the whole deal. It wasn't so sexy, but I absolutely learned a lot of basics about racing and mm. from being behind the wheel and not just uh, reading about it, not just going to the track. And I'd been to the track every year of my life. I'm 31 years old and I felt like I was starting from scratch. I mean, it was yeah. such a trip. But uh, yeah, so I, I did that. And then I raced in a class called ICA. Uh, and that is one level from the highest level you can go to. Um, Formula A is is or was at the time the highest level and formula a toured all of europe so they had their schedule was in italy and germany and the whole deal and as it was we just did the netherlands and belgium and a little bit in germany but um yeah funny story today max verstappen who is formula one's you know world champion he and i had the same home track we were both in amsterdam he was five years old at the time <laughs> but uh yeah it was it was really great he was like a helmet with shoes at the time that's what he looked like but oh, yeah. Uh, yeah super high level great experience um i came back uh and knn hired me away from they transit transitioned my job from working and running their european business to being their sports marketing director hmm. so i moved back to southern california became the sports marketing director and i started racing midgets uh there was a ford focus midget class i don't think that class exists right now but we did that for a few years and then i bought a sprint car and and my brother and I ran that and we continued to do autocrossing. Um, my brother does the uh, Optima um, Ultimate Streetcar Challenge. I don't know if you know that or not. Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah. So basically what it is, is, you know, the SEMA show? Yes. So some people got together. Uh, basically, the marketing guy for Optima Batteries got a bunch of people together at the SEMA show and said, you know, everybody makes really cool cars, but it's like a lot of bolt on stuff or it's somebody spent a lot of time doing cool fabrication, but does it really work? Mm. So he put together a challenge and he said, okay, I'm going to develop a scenario where you have to be able to drive that car through Vegas. That was where the first event was held. You have to go get uh, a receipt from in and out burger that you've eaten lunch there. You've got to get a awesome. poker chip from MGM You've got to, you know, go do all these random things. So the car has to be street able, headlights, turn signals, all this kind of stuff. And then you got to drive it out to Pahrump, which was like, I don't know, 80 miles away or something to the road course, do an autocross, do four road, road laps, uh, road course laps, and then do zero to hundred to zero. And so just all kinds of cool stuff. And so we entered that. My brother's won a few of those and it's really taken off. A lot of people are doing it. And, uh, yeah, in the last 10 years, I haven't done a lot of driving as much as I want to. I've been kind of back into this focus on the business, focus on building the business. And, um, yeah, that's a, that's the long version short. <laughs> that there's so much in there that, that is really inspirational. I, I think that racing is one of those things that, that the, the stereotype is you have to start super young, but your story here is someone who who didn't necessarily do that. And that's really cool right. for those other of us guys who are older, getting really excited, going to track days and feeling like uh, there's still meaningful skills to be gained. 
Absolutely. You know, it's funny, um, kind of a, a sport, a sporting comparison is that a lot of people think in triathlons, I did triathlons for five years and they think that you got to be 18 years old, 20 years old, 22 years old to be able to win a triathlon. And the fact of the matter is the number one category is between 35 and like 42 years old to mm. win the Ironman, to win, you know, the, on that level, because it requires not just physical effort to get it done. It requires a lot of psychological um, pacing yourself and mm -hmm. knowing when to be on and when to be off. And uh, the same thing applies, I think, in racing to some degree. You've got people that have no problem standing on the gas pedal, but or or the throttle or whatever they call it, an electric car. But it's still the gas pedal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which you have to realize, you know, pacing yourself and. I think that if anybody really wants to get into the sport, um, the, the benefit of being into the automotive racing scene is that it's really just a personal commitment. If you really want to learn how to drive a car, how to prepare a car uh, and do all of it, it's just how deep do you want to go? How how much persistence do you want to make? And it's, uh, yeah, money is a lot of it, but I think that um, there are plenty of options in this day and age that um, if you have some discretionary income, you can do whatever it is that you're doing and and get pretty good at it. You may not be able to go every weekend, mm -hmm. but you know, along those lines, you can go out and be competitive and safe and have a good time. Well, I'm excited to check out the uh, the Optima Streetcar Challenge in a, a few months because I'm going to SEMA this year. It's actually oh, cool. my first year being there. It's mm -hmm. part of EV Tuners and my growth here. I'm now going as media to to SEMA and I'll oh, be right there on. all week. So it should be really fun. Yeah, cool. Oh, there's lots to learn. There's lots of people there. Um, you've got some riffraff that kind of float around. Nice. You got to get past that and find out who's <laughs> really doing the the business. But uh, yeah, it's it's a cool experience. So you had mentioned that you came back to the states um, working for K and N, but then you 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 mentioned like focusing on on the business. So um, somewhere in there, there's a shift where you went from marketing sports marketing for K and N back to carbon fiber. Is that right? Yes, yes, right. So I, I never actually left the carbon fiber scene, um, but what happened was. It, in my life, it went back and forth from being a primary uh, focus to a secondary focus. So mm -hmm. when I was in Europe, um, my experience and exposure with carbon fiber was I started a bag and wallet business. Um, I'd actually started it before I went to Europe, but I got deep into it when I went to Europe because I met the CEO of Momo. I don't know if you've ever heard of Momo, like Momo wheels. Momo. Steering wheels? Yeah, right. Yeah. So the, the CEO... They they actually sold Canon air filters through their Italian distribution. I don't know how that got set up. That happened before me, but um, I became friends with him, and um, I had this carbon fiber wallet. It was a flexible wallet made in China, and that was a, something I had going in San Francisco. And he looked at it and he kind of said, "Oh, this is nice, but you know, if you're going to do something like a serious fashion item, you need to do it in Italy, or don't waste your time." Mm, <laughs> okay. <yep. laughs> so he introduced me to the people that make the small leather goods for Ferrari. And oh, it was that was a, the beginning of another whole direction in my life. So wow. um, I did uh, carbon fiber bags, uh, like attaches, carbon fiber wallets of all different sizes. I did carbon fiber uh, women's hobo bags, um, clutches, uh, high heels, wedges, all kinds of stuff. 
And um, yeah, so that was always kind of going on in the background while I was working for K&N Filters. Um, and then ultimately, the the sports marketing thing I did for them was a massive commitment. I was at the racetrack representing them and finding teams and sponsorships and working relationships. I'd go to 52 races a year, Dang. which is a lot. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, it wouldn't be unusual for me to be at a race in Indiana on a Friday night and then, uh, go to Iowa for Saturday night to a different event and, you know, it's all over the place. So it was, it was difficult to really have a, a full fledged, full on business effort to the carbon fiber, you know, accessories, but I just kind of kept it going and I sold it through my own brand and, and that kind of a thing. And then once I left k filters, the transition was, um, I ultimately moved to North Carolina from Los Angeles to the Charlotte area, and I ended up becoming a sales rep for three companies, k Filters and everything they did at NASCAR. So they used me to be their relationship and, and navigate how to work in NASCAR and get all the relationships with Penske and Richard Childress and Roush and all that and organize those relationships. And then um, I took on two other companies. Um, JRI Shocks, you might have heard of them. They're they're top of the board right now for a shock company. Um, they were just coming together. The the main guy, Jeff Ryan, that's for the JR and the JRI. He left uh, Penske Shocks and started this new brand. So I helped them get into companies like Detroit Speed, which in the automotive aftermarket is a really big name for guys that specifically have Camaros. Some Mustang guys, but uh, they're they're old school classic Camaros. Mm. Um, and uh why is my brain fading on what the other one was but oh sparco so sparco oh, sure. italy um i worked for them and we developed a seat for nascar so that was a two-year project and um a carbon fiber uh fourteen thousand dollar seat one seat for um the nascar teams to use and it was uh, sled tested and all this kind of stuff so i was able to use my carbon fiber experience and then some true development of the materials and, and to make a seat uh, that was ultimately approved in, in the NASCAR rule book. So that, that transition kind of happened and I finished that stint in like 2012, somewhere on there. Okay. And then my dad got sick and um, ultimately I came back to California to take over Meyer uh, racing. And then after a few years of making some changes and thinking about the future, I changed the company from Meyer racing to Meyer corporation and Meyer racing is now a division of Meyer corporation. Meyer EV is a division of Meyer corporation, Charles Meyer bags, wallets, whatever I got going on still from Italy is a division of, of that. So it's all kind of bundled under one umbrella. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. And some, and some efficiency, some less compartmentalization in your mind, right? Cause it's yeah. now one thing with several divisions can like take a breath. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Somehow it fits in my brain. <laughs> I love it. So carbon fiber is talked about a lot in, in racing, right? Mm -hmm. But then it's also talked a lot about in people who like to mod their cars. It's, oh, I want carbon fiber mirror covers, carbon fiber, everything. Mm -hmm. And and obviously in like fashion, even it's, it's really popular and is a really cool material it, that weave. You look at it, you're, oh, that's carbon fiber. Could you just take a moment and like 
explain what it is like for a layman, someone who doesn't know what carbon fiber is, or they just know it as what it looks like, but they don't understand what it really is and why it's cool. Okay. So, um, I tell this, uh, I, I explain this or I try to, uh, often we little tangent, but between my brother and I and our business, we have taken on um, engineering students, specifically in the Bay Area. San Jose State University had a Formula SAE program. Okay. Um, have you, are you familiar with what that is? Yeah, it's like students. I, I believe so. It's students who are getting together and they actually build a car, right? Yes, and then compete correct. against each other. Correct. And there's uh, universities all over. I I want to say actually university competitions worldwide but it's primarily in the United States. Okay. So Cal Berkeley might have one and uh, uh, San Jose State has one. So the reason that I mention this is because if you were to go to Stanford as an example and you wanted to study carbon fiber uh, composite uh, structures, they don't let you really get into that until fifth year engineering because they want you to have a really good comprehension of all these other basic subjects in engineering. So We've had many, many interns since 1992, not every year, but almost from San Jose State working for us. And we're working with them because now those cars are becoming, those Formula SAE cars are becoming more and more carbon fiber. Uh, the last project I did with them, they were trying to do a carbon fiber wheel. And I ended up doing my move to Boise, Idaho. And I don't know how far along they got on that, but um you get people that are green to the subject every single year coming in, kind of asking the same questions. And one of the things that I that I use as an example is if you look at bridge structures like the San Francisco Bay Bridge or something along that line, it's full of cables. The, yeah. the entire structure is uh, suspended by cables. And what some people may not know is that the reason that you use cables instead of, let's say, one big, huge piece of steel, you know, like a, a round piece of steel that might be eight inches in diameter or something is you use as many, you get them as small as you possibly can. And you get as many of them in that, in that area as you possibly can, because from an engineering standpoint, the strength of any structure is based on the surfaces, the strength and the stiffness. So specifically the stiffness in this case, in, in the, in the um, cables is that as a cable is uh, pulled in one direction or twisted in another direction. It's the outer surface is going through tension and going or going through compression if they're collapsing and tension if they're stretching. And the more surface area that you're able to work on, um, the more stiffness you can get out of it, the more strength you can get out of it. And basically all the material inside, you know, no matter what scale you're looking at, if you're looking at a little, little, little tiny, you know, hair, so to speak, or it's this massive chunk that's easy to, with your eyes to comprehend, you know, everything in the middle, all the material in the middle is kind of along for the ride. Okay. So what happens is with carbon fiber is they're, they're basically, I don't, I don't know who or what group of people initially put this together, but they said, you know, if we can take carbon, carbon steel and draw it down into the smallest, smallest, smallest possible, uh, strand, um, then we can utilize all the surfaces of that and not have any quote unquote material in the middle that's along for the ride. We can create a bundle of strands. So when you look at something, you like something that's real common, you go to a BMW and you look at the roof of it and it's got this gorgeous carbon fiber and you get up close enough and you look and what looks like a single strand is called a toe. 
And that toe typically, like on the the BMW, is made up of 3,000 individual strands. Just that little, little tiny toe. Wow. So when if if you're like me and you're buying carbon fiber or you're using it for a project, typically the carbon fiber is um, described as a 1K toe, a 3K, a 6K, a 12K. And basically what that is, is 1K is 1,000 strands, 3K, 3,000 strands, 6K, 6,000 strands in that toe. And so 3K is the most common. So just about any part you look at, whether it's a Lamborghini, Corvette, whatever, it's going to be a 3K toe. So the thing of it is, is that um, the reason that people are so enamored with carbon fiber is because you can get so much stiffness for very little weight when you work off this theory of the cables and you can expand the the comprehension of it. Sometimes some people don't pay attention to this per se, but like in body panels, like a a hood of a car, maybe the hood of a car, if you were to cut a carbon fiber hood, for example, in half and just look at the cross section of it, it might look like it's one inch thick, but what it probably is, is three or four or five layers of carbon fiber on the top and then some core whether it's foam or honeycomb or whatever, and then another three or four or five layers on the bottom. And essentially that gets back to that. Let's not put any um, structure into the middle of this. Let's just throw some foam in there or honeycomb or whatever and separate those outer skins so that we can work off the stiffness of those. And there's Mm -hmm. another thing that's very interesting about composites is that the more you separate the skins, the greater the stiffness is. Not necessarily the strength, so strength, we might associate with being able to take a hit. You know, you've sure. got this carbon fiber front end and you you run into a telephone pole and the whole thing shatters. And they go, oh, well, it was carbon fiber. I thought it was going to be really strong. Well, it, it is strong. It can be strong. But what that part was designed to do was to be really stiff. So it's going to hold its shape at a high speed, 100 miles an hour on the front end of a you know Lamborghini or something to that effect. But they're not necessarily designing it to be the strongest possible part. If they were doing that, they might actually put some fiberglass into it, or they might put an epoxy that's holding it all together with a a toughening system where they add some plastic into it and make it more of a rubbery consistency like a Bondo spreader. You Mm -hmm. know what a Bondo spreader is? Yellow Bondo spreaders? Yeah, yeah. So there's so many things with composites that you can do um, to – when I design something, it's almost kind of a brain cramp because – you'll have a conversation with a simple layman at a, at a track that says, Hey, I want to see if you can make this for me. Or you sit down with a group of engineers that want to do a carbon fiber C. And there's so many possibilities getting back to this university concept is that the materials are not homogenous. It's not like aluminum where no matter what direction you cut it for the most part, it's going to have an equal strength in whichever direction the materials are very much directionally loaded and directionally stiff or strong based on that cable orientation. Does that make sense? Kind of. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And is the best I've ever, I'm having kind of light bulbs going off for sure. Oh, good. So the cable metaphor works for me. Good, good. Yeah. I mean, we can extrapolate on that concept and and talk about all kinds of examples of products that, that you could use and make. One of the things I mentioned in our discussion uh, a week or so back was the idea of doing carbon fiber wheels. Yes. And so we're 
we as a company and, and as a direction really want to go into carbon fiber wheels. And I know that generally speaking, that there are several carbon fiber companies around that want to pursue this. And for good reason, I don't think it's a matter of if it's a matter of when it really becomes mainstream because the beauty of it, like what I did with the, the wheel that we did is we made it hollow and the upside to a hollow carbon fiber wheel is that you can't make, you can't really make an aluminum wheel hollow. So if you look at an aluminum wheel or magnesium wheel or whatever, in order for them to get the stiffness out of it through the shape, they're having to make a web or they're having to make lots of small pieces. Um, and then they're trying to figure out because it's homogenous what they can do. But every everything that they do, they have to consider the fact that all the material inside that forged piece or inside that, you know, billet aluminum piece, everything in the middle is along for the ride. Mm -hmm. So they're immediately up against a wall trying to compete against something that can be fully fibrous, can be fully cables. And so in my carbon fiber wheel, there's a, a five spoke. I might be able to go ahead. I don't know if you've seen it. You can take it from our website, the MeyerCorp.com, or I can send you some photos, but you might be able to include that in this part of our chat. Yeah. But it's a five spoke wheel and it's about two inches thick by about three inches wide. And um, it's all hollow in the middle. And the benefit is, is that we can separate those layers of those surfaces to really gain the stiffness. And then we can put the weight where we want. Um, if we need the, the weight to transition from super thick in the center of the wheel, where all the load is from braking, from acceleration, from uh, leverage on the wheel turning and, and all that to the outer uh, hoop, to the outer drum barrel of the wheel, we can go thinner and thinner and thinner. And it's very difficult to get that done in a uh, forged uh, wheel or in a billet wheel or anything like that. But you can lay all the material in a mold in whatever orientation you want to be able to give you the best stiffness in the direction that you want. So, I mean, it's really an ideal scenario for composites. We can have, we the wheel I made was 14 and a half pounds, which is basically equivalent to what Koenigsegg did in Sweden. Um, and it's a 19 by 10 and a half. So you get some idea of the size. Oh, of the nice. Wheel. So it's a pretty big wheel to say that we did it 14 and a half pounds. And if somebody else came along and said, oh, well, I can make a magnesium wheel at 14 and a half or an aluminum wheel at 14 and a half pounds. Well, you might be able to, but the challenge is, is that you'll never be able to conveniently separate the walls. And if you said, well, I'm going to you know, build it in sections or I'm, I'm going to weld it together, or I'm going to do all these things. Well, every time you have a joint, whether it's bolting or whether it's welding, it's a stress riser. It's a location for, you know, a fracture. So uh, it really has, a, a, it's a great application to go for a wheel. And I, and I really want to pursue this as far as we can go. That sounds exciting. So on the horizon, there's potential that I can put carbon fiber wheels on the Tesla and right. bring them to the track. Sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that, I, I do have some data, um, but I, so I'm going out on, on a little bit of a, um, how can I say this? Sort of a BS statement. In okay. other words, I'm taking information that I have and I'm going to tell you something based on my belief and my experience, but it's not fully accurate and I can't necessarily prove it today. Mm -hmm. But I know from um, some of the sources that I've worked with that they have done back-to-back -back tests where they took an aluminum wheel as close as they could weight and size off of a Tesla put a carbon fiber wheel on 
ran at Laguna Seca back to back and increase or decrease lap times by a second, which wow. is huge. That's a big number. So if you think about it, you and I are excited because we're in racing. But if we go to the boardrooms of Lucid, we go to the boardrooms of Tesla, we go to the boardrooms of Rivion, any of these companies that are trying to figure out how to get range. Yeah. So it, it's not a difficult mathematical equation to say if you go to a racetrack and you can drop a lap time by a second a lap because you've got a carbon fiber wheel that spins up faster, slows down faster, all these things, then essentially around town driving, it's going to increase your range because every time you step on the throttle or whatever, it's ha- it's taking less energy to spin it up and less energy to slow it down. So consequently, I'm going to say that's going to help range, which should help everything in the transit in the transportation market. So I think this is going to be a big discussion. And when you look at cost, all the different ways that they're trying to chase down, figuring out increasing the range. I'm not saying they're out of options, but they're definitely limited at this point. So maybe if they're going to spend $8,000 on a set of four wheels, it sounds like a lot to you and I right now, but in the overall price tag of the car and what it might be able to do, they might be spending that kind of money on batteries and we're not even realizing it. And they could back out some numbers over there. Oh yeah. I think that uh, for most of those brands you just mentioned, if you want to go for like the next step up in pack, it's 10 grand. So to go like a Ford Lightning to go for from the uh, 230 mile to the 320 mile uh, pack, I think is 10 grand. So yeah, maybe there's an option in there that's eight grand and gets you somewhere in between. Right. Yes. Right. And then, you know, you can say, hey, it's cool looking. And in fact, if I do go to the track, it's going to perform better. And I think there's going to be a lot of benefit there. One thing that I've always wondered in looking at carbon fiber wheels, particularly, is how do they perform with things like heat? Um, I mean, there's there we talked a little bit about how there's different types of stress that a, a material is going to come across. There may be its its resistance to de- deformation, but um, and or impacts, but heat we haven't really talked about. How how does that factor in on these types of pieces? Um, it's a great question. And a funny truth is I'm going to puff my chest up and say, I made my first carbon fiber part when I was 1992. And I know all there is to know about carbon fiber. And I'm, I'm learning so much, even this, this, (laughs) this far into my career. Um, and I had this exact question. I, I called up my uncle who's a retired nuclear physicist. He used to work in DC and he taught at a university out there. Very, very switched on guy. Hard to talk to because he's just socially awkward. But from a mathematical standpoint, the guy is really on. And I said, look, um, I said, I have a question because I know for a fact, for firsthand experience, that if I build um, a mold or part or whatever, let's say a mold, for example, and I put it into the oven, um, it's like I need to I need to put more energy. I need to put more heat into the mold to get the temperature with the thermocouple on the part to get up to temperature because it, it's not like aluminum where it soaks up heat and then it's a heat sink and it just stays hot for a long period of time. It's like the carbon fiber will drop the heat very, very quickly. Hmm. And we used to um, make carbon fiber valve covers and we did it in aluminum tooling and we did it in carbon fiber tooling and all these things. And as soon as we pulled it out of the oven, 250 degrees within 30 seconds, we could pull a part out of a mold just with our hands. You couldn't touch that aluminum mold 
for maybe 20 minutes. But that carbon fiber part, you can pull it right out. Wow. And um, I said, you know, why? Why from a mathematical standpoint? I know this is, but I don't, I can't explain why. And he said, it's back to the cables. It's all the surfaces. So due to the fact that that part has so many surfaces in it, the heat, once it's there, it's dissipating very, very quickly. So, I mean, if you look at BMW, for example, my wife's X4, you go underneath and you look at the rear end housing and it's got a finned back cover to the rear end, to the differential. You probably have seen transmission cases, rear end cases, and they all have these aluminum fins. It's for surface area. They're trying to get all the surface area they can so that the heat can, can escape through the surface area. Well, if the carbon fiber has all these cables and all these surface areas, then heat's not a problem. It's going away so fast. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It's actually acting like a. Uh, I've seen the fins like on CPUs, computers, motors, like a heat sink. So Absolutely. they're actually functioning like that. That's right. Wow. What about um, products like uh, like rotors, carbon fiber rotors? Excellent, excellent product. Because, I mean, you can drop the weight massive. So, for example, uh, Tesla has that new track pack out for the Model S, and, and they're um, putting up a carbon fiber rotor. Um, so the standard rotor that, that they replaced, and I'm saying this on an educated guess because I don't know the exact part number, the exact weight. But it probably weighed 20 pounds as a steel, you know, rotor. And the one that they're replacing it with is probably in the magnitude of eight or nine pounds. That's so a big think weight about drop. The, what? That's a big weight drop. Absolutely. And the other thing is, um, I have friends that are actually racing in the Trans Am series that have been using carbon rotors. And this one friend of mine in particular, he said, hey, I've had carbon rotors on the same car for three seasons. And we're driving at every single event. And he said it just they last a long, long time because the the heat, it takes a bit to to get heat into them. If you talk to anybody that uses a carbon rotor, the the brake pad has to be pretty aggressive to get, especially if it's a street driven car, because you really want the brakes to happen right now. If it's a a road raced car, they're not as concerned because they know the first lap or two, you're going to have a chance to be on the brake and and get some friction into the, the pad and friction into the rotor. But in a road car for the street, you're you're having to have an aggressive pad because they're they're so cool. Hmm. So if you're driving on them really, really hard, it takes a lot to get heat in them. And, and heat is the thing that is causing the degradation for the most part. So um yeah, they're really, really hard. Um, they last a long time, they take weight out, they're expensive. But I think this is another thing. It wouldn't surprise me if this becomes more standard on EVs for that reason, just like the wheel. And are those manufactured or maybe there's a bunch of different ways to go about it, but is it somewhat similar? So you have some layers and you're kind of making a solid piece or is there some hollow space inside uh, between between the halves? So I'm going to qualify my answer with telling you this is another BS answer. Okay. I, I haven't made one, but I know a little bit about the process. Okay. So essentially um, they, they make a laminate. Um, let's say it's one inch thick, uh, like a big flat plate. Mm-hmm. And then what they do is they post cure it and they cook it up really high and they try to burn off a lot of the matrix, which is the resin that's holding it together. And then, so let's say that the, the original lamination is, um, we'll just go with simple math, 50% fiber, 50% resin. So let's say they put it in an oven and they cure it out and they burn off 25% of the resin. So what they try to do is they, 
essentially infuse, and this is where I haven't done it, so I don't know exactly how they do this, but okay. they infuse the laminate with more fiber and more resin. And then apparently they try to do this process again. So they'll go ahead and try to get more fiber into it, burn off some of the resin and do this a few times to get a very, very dense um, carbon composition at the end. Makes sense. That's what I was envisioning. It was like, this seems to be like it's getting denser and denser. And then yes. you said dense. And I was like, okay, cool. I got it. <laughs> yeah. that That's probably not far off what's actually happening, but I don't want anybody to take it to the bank and go, that guy said for sure. <laughs> it's all right. We're making wild accusations here, but it's horseshoes. Right. So we're close enough. Right. Hmm. Yeah, that that's really, that's really interesting. It makes sense though. Um, what other what other parts do you see maybe being benefiting from this? Uh, car enthusiasts, race enthusiasts, are there things that people should be excited about? Hmm. Well, I think that it's a um, it's a nice benefit that the product can look sexy. Yeah. Um, that that I'm, I'm absolutely a hundred percent sure that nobody intended for it to be that way when they made it, <laughs> but. Uh, it, it can look really cool, clear coated and, uh, you know, for cosmetic pieces inside the car or um, I did that fashion company where I, I've done all these products made in Italy. And actually, I did watch bands for Apple, um, all carbon fiber watch bands. Um, and so I think that it's it's really cool that it looks great. But I think that the big areas of gain and improvement haven't yet come to pass um, I think that the fact that it doesn't hold heat, it, it moves heat very, very quickly. It, you can get massive stiffness numbers with very low quantities of material. Um, so just like in racing, when you factor those things into a race car, it, it allows you, if the racing sanction says the car has to have a minimum weight of whatever, and you put all these carbon fiber accessories on it and you bring the weight down 500 pounds under that. Well, then you can start putting the weight where you want it. Mm. So from a competition standpoint, you're going to put it low. Uh, you're going to put it maybe in the back of the car or, you know, right next to the rear wheel, if that's where your driving is. So I think that the automotive industry may not look at it like we're trying to get the best lap times, but we're trying to get more range. So if you could take the overall weight of an electric car from 3,500 pounds to 3,000 pounds, but that enables them to put more battery in or you know something along those lines or put other electronics that are doing other things for the, the driver yeah. that they couldn't do because they were already pushing the weight limit. Uh, you know, they could put things where they want. Um, I did a carbon fiber chassis for a Mini Cooper. I have a 1960 Mini Cooper and the whole bottom was rusted out. So it was like a Fred Flintstone type car. <laughs> <laughs> so I built a carbon fiber chassis out of carbon fiber I-beams. And um, the short version of the story is um, when I made the I-beams, I did it in channels. So a channel, like on a, I laid up a, on a rectangular piece of steel, like half of it. So I got a channel when I pulled it off and I'd make two, I'd put them back to back, put a top and a bottom and gives me an I-beam. Mm -hmm. well, I took those channels and I put them in between the I-beams and the floor of this chassis. And the, the catch is after I made this chassis, I thought, you know, people could build EV cars this way that they, they, a lot of people call an EV platform now a roller skate. Have you heard that term? Yes, absolutely. 
So you've got a lot of companies like aftermarket companies that are trying to do uh, AC Cobras or um, different kit cars or classic Mustangs with an electric platform that I think that we could start building these uh, roller skates, so to speak, out of carbon fiber chassis or even a fiberglass version where we could put the batteries down there. Uh, we could do a variety of things where it doesn't hold a lot of heat. All of them now are aluminum. And aluminum does what? It holds heat. Yeah, right. okay, it's light, but um, we we can be lighter, we can be stiffer, and we can move the temperature better. So I, I think that there's huge room for composites. The biggest downside to composites is it's not as automated as a lot of the processes in aluminum are or stamp steel and those things. So when somebody walks in the room and says, I want you know 10,000 cars, um, in a month, or I want 5,000 cars in a month, and you start doing the math and you figure out, well, how, how many people is it going to take me to produce that much? Yeah. With robotics and all that, they're able to crank out the numbers now. So I think it's going to be a low volume thing that'll get there over time. Do you think there's potential for automation some, t- some distance in the future or are a- the absolutely. processes? Yeah. Okay. The, the roof for the BMW, um, there's some, there are a few videos on YouTube about how it's made. And that whole thing is made through robotics and automation. The The upside is that it's done that way. The, the downside is, I don't know what the cost was for all the system to put that together. It, maybe it was $10 million and they made enough of those that it, it justified it. But right. when you're talking to a smaller company like me, that's looking at you know volumes that are in the hundreds or maybe thousand in a year, the money isn't justifying that yet. But I think it's transitioning that direction. Yeah, it makes perfect sense because they BMW knows that they're going to sell a lot of those. And so a smaller margin makes sense. That's right. So you briefly touched upon it towards the beginning of this conversation. But as we as we wrap up, I know that uh, that you are busy and I don't want to take too much of your time. Um, I'd like to just kind of circle around the current Tesla products that that you have. Um, Mm -hmm. And could you maybe remind us all uh, what what is currently available today? What people could go to your website and buy? Sure. Um, our website is Meyer, M-A-I-E-R-E-V.com. And what we're offering there are those original front and rear spoilers that we did for the Model 3. Uh, we offer uh, a 7-inch rear spoiler, which is the track version. Uh, we offer a 4-inch rear spoiler, uh, which is basically just a shorter version of the same thing. Um, it's not as over the top. Some people compare our seven inch rear spoiler to like something you might see on a Subaru where that Subaru crowd's a little bit more aggressive and they're probably more function minded rather than aesthetics. Sure. Um, pretty much anything that we offer right now through that website, Meyer EV is designed with the idea of function. So, um, the side skirts that we make, uh, are actually intended to be functional. So the, the idea is that more of a flat surface on the bottom of the car um, is giving you more uh, ground effects. Um, So I actually do that for the purpose of it being an enhancement to the way the car is driving. A lot of people have asked me to do a rear diffuser as an example to um, any one of those, the the Model Y, the Model 3, or the S. Yeah. In my opinion, the, the bottom of the Teslas, whichever of those cars, uh, Tesla has done a great job of keeping the bottom really flat. Um, about the only thing, 
in my opinion, that we could really do to benefit by putting a rear diffuser on the back of a Tesla would be to, to really do a full competition style. And it would it would involve a pretty significant overhaul of the back end of the car. And I would argue that it's probably just incrementally better. So if a person was driving and, and I built this, you know, amazing over-the-top rear diffuser for a Model 3 or something of that effect, in order for it to be better than what you have on the car right now, you have to probably be averaging speeds between 60 and 120 miles an hour, or it's not going to be doing you any benefit. Mm. And the amount of benefit is probably going to be this much. So I, I try to produce a product that is functional, that is aesthetically nice. Um, I mentioned this to you before, and I'll say it now. Uh, there's a difference between a lot of the products that are out there by some of the competition. Won't name names, but... Um, even even a Tesla, as a matter of fact, they're right off the shelf. Uh, they offer a real thin uh, carbon fiber rear spoiler, um, yeah. you know, direct OE. All those parts are really nice. Um, they're made typically from an epoxy. They're made pre-preg. Um, when you look at the part, it looks flawless. It's really great. While we have an autoclave and we have the ability to make our parts that way, I choose not to. And so I mentioned this to you before, and I'll mention it to anybody that wants to know, we make our parts polyester resin, we hand lay it up. So every single part starts dry fabric and with hands, not any automation whatsoever. We put it down into the mold. Um, we use a, a marine clear gel coat. And essentially when the part comes out, we detail it all by hand. We sand, if it's a clear version, we offer black and clear. If it's a clear version, then we sand that all down and we spray it with a PPG. It's a high-end, $750 a gallon, high-end PPG urethane. And um, sometimes if there's a lot of debris in it from you know the paint or whatever, if there's a lot of what we call orange peel, we'll sand it and buff it. So sometimes they're buffed and sometimes they're not. But if you looked at my parts versus something right from the factory at Tesla, you might sit there and say, oh, maybe there's a few imperfections. Maybe somebody touched the weave and there's a slight distortion in the weave and you wouldn't normally see that in an epoxy pre-pregged part. And I say, well, I would still rather in this case do the polyester for this reason. Epoxies don't handle UV very well. Mm -hmm. So what happens is the part's gonna brown out or turn a little amber or a little yellow and if you spray uh, a clear coat PPG over the top that's UV stable, that's stable and it might, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not defer, but uh, extend the amount of time that it takes for that epoxy to brown out or to yellow out. But the, the, the adhesion between that polyurethane and the epoxy is um, very low. Uh, things don't, epoxies don't like to stick to themselves and polyurethanes don't stick to epoxies all that well. So my polyester parts from an engineering standpoint may not be absolutely perfect and ideal, but when you put it on the car five years from now, 10 years from now, it's not going to yellow out. If you get any damage and you need to repair it, all the bondos that are polyester base, um, any of the polyesters that you buy at Lowe's or Home Depot, it's totally repairable. Epoxies are not repairable very mm. easily. You, you really have to pay attention to what you're doing. So I've gone about this whole thing with more of a um, common sense. You know, I don't want it to brown out. I want people to be able to repair it. I accept the fact that it's made by hand. We're making it here in the United States. Um, we try to charge a fair and reasonable price. Uh, some of the things that come out of Asia are absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it's like jewelry. 
But at the same time, if they're, again, made out of epoxies, they're going to brown out. And um, ultimately, um, they may or may not, that that top layer of clear may or may not stick. And you can't really repair it. So the average guy is not going to be able to repair it. Yeah, Does that, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense and pretty important uh, for folks who are uh, who are taking such good care of their cars. And if you're, especially if you're on the track, dings happen, right? It, to right. be able to repair that is key. Um, and if you're daily driving, it's impossible to avoid the sun. So that, that logic definitely holds. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. So there are a few things that we're doing that are trying to address that agenda. I mean. Would I go out and buy, you know, a brand new car with super cool epoxy carbon fiber parts on it? Yes, I, I'd be happy with it. But, you know, it, there's a trade-off, I guess, at the end of the day. And this is just the choice that I made. I, I wouldn't argue with anybody that somebody else makes junk and I make perfect parts. It's just my thinking. Sure, sure. Different, uh, different right tool for the right job, right? That's, yeah. That's kind of the the old adage. Mm-hmm. And so currently we're looking at uh, Model 3, Model Y, and Model S that have these, these parts for it, right? Yep. Front spoilers, rear spoilers. Model S is the only one that we do not offer a side skirt right now, but we do for the Y and the 3. And it's pretty much just been by demand. I don't have okay. as many people asking for side skirts on the S. Although now with the track pack, who knows? Maybe they might. Yeah, they might. Yeah. Well, we'll stay tuned for that then if it uh, comes to pass. Cool. Charles, thank you so much for chatting with me. This I learned a ton. This was really enjoyable and uh, I'll look forward to doing it again sometime. Awesome. Look forward to it. To be continued. <laughs>